Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Your Ben Jarofsky Show, pre-recorded from Ben's house for Thursday, March 19th is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150 are sponsors, as well as the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show wouldn't be brought to you at all if it weren't for our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Ben Jarofsky, song of the day. Oh, what is the song of the day? I haven't... Hello, darkness, my old friend. I don't know why I thought of that, because it's so wait, dark and gloomy. Way and... to cheer everybody up. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I, yeah, maybe I should sing. Uh, what's a happy song? I'm happy today. Da, 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 da. Okay, it's not two for Tuesday. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know, but it's just, I looked outside. It was so gloomy and dark. It was starting to rain. I was like, get, get your walks in early, folks, because it's going to rain later in the day. D, start walking. Uh, but not until after okay. the show. Ben Jarofsky's show starts now. Mm. It is Thursday, March 19th. And pre-recorded from Ben's house, yeah. this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, political strategist PC Peter Cunningham makes his return over the phone. We're talking progressive politics with In These Times writer Miles Camp-Lassen over the phone. And we welcome political consultant Nikki Budzinski, yes, over the phone. And now your host, oh, he's not over the phone. <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this What a Bunch of Lying Republican Thursday. And here's why. So many things on my mind, D, today. I'm going to have to start out by listing them. Let's see. Number one, I want to talk about how we're doing the show from my house again. Number two, I want to talk about how we're all socialists. I'm going to be talking a lot about that. We're all socialists. Now, isn't that interesting? Now they beat up on old Bernie for being a, a democratic socialist. Everyone's a socialist today in this day and age with coronavirus. Number three, what a bunch of liars republicans great essay in the washington post got to give pc peter cunningham a uh, shout out for calling it to my attention by Stuart C. stevens it's a book he wrote it's a sort of like a, a distillation of a book he wrote called it was all a lie by republican strategists Wait, that yeah. was number three yeah, that was number three. Number yeah. three. Yeah, number three. And number four, I mean, I want to talk about Ed Burke. I want to talk about Dino Danny Lipinski. I know. I mean, I just want to talk about yesterday. I'm not done going through the votes. The Jacob Kaplan theory about how suddenly uh, women with Latino last names, very popular with the voters. Maya Dukmasova, right now as we speak, is... is Dukmasova. Dukmasova is researching an essay on this about the uh, clerk's race. So uh, that's on my mind. I've been texting with Maya. 
So I'll talk about that too. Uh, but let's start at the top. We're doing uh, the show again from my house. And for some reason, I don't know why, we can't go live. It's too complicated to explain. So let's just it's say. really not. The Wi-Fi is not strong enough and we have to go through a hard line. Boom. That's a good accent. You know what? You just don't want to listen sometimes. I, you know, I just think so. maybe we should just said it was too complicated to explain. <laughs> but they Boom. did a good job of explaining it. Pretty easy. We need a stronger Wi-Fi. Anybody got Wi-Fi out there? Send one no, over. No, we need to connect through the hard line. The Wi-Fi isn't strong enough. Oh. We need the hard line. Okay. All right. Yeah. We need a better hard line. Or whatever. Uh, so that as soon as we figure that out, and we have a lot of big brains working on that one, let me tell you folks. Uh, we'll be going live again. So for the moment, we're going to record it. Drop this at 4 o'clock or 4.10, whatever it is. Uh, day two, anyway, in my house, as I was saying, uh, it's a little bit of an adjustment. Everybody is uh, working out very well with this. I want to thank our guests for being so cooperative and uh, putting up with the phone calls that we're giving them, setting this thing up. I'll tell you the happiest guy with this, young Dennis. Oh, my oh, God. Yeah. So yesterday I turn around. There's my wife. She's like walking out of the room. Dennis is eating a peanut butter jelly sandwich. He's got this big smile on his face. It was, face. Good. It was, it was like, God damn, I'm getting fed. Because <laughs> when we're at the sun time, nobody comes in and feeds Dennis. You know, Brian, the IT guy, one day, you think he would come in and feed Dennis? No, he's not feeding Dennis. Well, Mark Sims and your wife. That's about it. That's about it. And then as he was leaving the house, he was telling my wife, you know, for tomorrow's sandwich, could you toast it a little okay, bit? Okay, I like didn't it toasted. do that. And, and maybe cut off the crust. I'm not really in the crust. No, he didn't do any of that. But he loves peanut butter and jelly, ladies and gentlemen. He was the happiest camper I've ever seen. Mm-mm-mm. Eating that PB&J, man. I know my wife can cook. So he's happy that we're here uh, in the uh, in our little attic overlooking the alley and the the brown line. Uh, so uh, Dennis is happy, and if Dennis is happy, I'm happy. What else? We're all socialists today, man. I can't get over this headline in the New York Times: U.S. seeks 500 billion in checks for taxpayers. Yes, indeed, they're just going to be writing out checks to taxpayers. Here you go, everybody. You know, listen for the damage uh, to the economy from the coronavirus. Outbreak, I'm absolutely 100% for it. I believe that there's a need for government. I believe that there's a need for collective security. The, the whole point of government is to look out for everybody, the common good. I believe that we've been sold a bill of goods by the Republican Party. We're going to get into that. Uh, denigrating government, making it seem as like government is the enemy. This goes back to the, the age of Reagan. Uh, and uh, it is really accelerated under Donald Trump. Donald Trump, his entire government has been dedicated, or his entire administration is dedicated to the notion that somehow or other, people who work for government are the enemies, and that only he can be trusted. And apparently 40 to 45% of the population is just willing to follow him wherever he leads. But here we are in this uh, moment of crisis, and suddenly government's very important. And now he's ready to use the power of government to send out checks. He's going to send everybody a check. Where's Andrew Yang? Andrew Yang is like, hey, this was my idea. They all made fun of me when I came up with this idea. Like, Damn, I dropped out too early. <laughs> yeah, he dropped out too early. Andrew Yang, he got about 2% of the vote or something. I, I, I was always in the, uh, the top three for me. So, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Not one word about a deficit, the, the, the bailout, the past, the... 
the House and the Senate overwhelmingly. Uh, the Republicans were aboard. There was very little debate. And like I said, not one word about a deficit. And Democrats, I hope you're listening to me when I tell you this. For years and years and years, every time anybody uh, to the left of the Democratic Party talked about the need to finance programs that would help the poorest of the poor, the working class, the middle class, people who are sick, people who don't have health insurance, we were always told that we were being irresponsible, that the most important thing was to keep that deficit under control. We needed a balanced budget. In fact, Republicans would float the notion of a balanced budget amendment and there were some Democrats who bought into this. Joe Biden played along with this for the longest time. They bought into it. They were so afraid of being labeled too liberal or too lefty or irresponsible or socialistic or whatever it was, little catchphrase that the Republicans would apply to them. They were so fearful of it that they bought into this. They played along with this and they would join the Republicans with these bipartisan efforts. Let's discuss how we can balance the budget. Let's discuss how what a threat it is that we have a deficit we i used to hear this talk just recently right was it what six weeks ago d i've lost track of time when the teachers were on strike here in the city of chicago and the teachers were saying how irresponsible it is just think about this folks to allow a public school system uh to continue with so few nurses you, you know we should have some nurses in the public school in case kids get sick right? Look, kids are poor. They don't go to the doctors on a regular basis in many cases. So we need public nurses in the public schools. And the powers that be were like, oh no, that's irresponsible. We don't have money for that. Lori says she'll provide the nurses. Just be quiet, go along, take her at her word, whether it's in the budget or not. Remember that debate, D? Remember that one? We, there was a teacher strike over that issue. And so many liberals on the north side of Chicago, Ben, the teachers are asking for too much. Ben, we have to be responsible. We have to be fiscally responsible. All these Democrats bought into this notion. Was that an impression of anyone in particular? Just, ben, <laughs> Ben. Just in general, my ben. liberal neighbors. Tribune reading. Listen to NPR. I, I heard on NPR, Lori Lightfoot's uh, administration talking. And Ben, you have to admit they have a point. Ben. They always hear like, they hear something. Ben, you have to admit they have a point. How many times have people say, Ben, you have to admit they have a point. I think that's a new uh, impression, <laughs> a new voice you got there. It's just like a general I north like side it. liberal. Ben, I like it. You have to admit they have a point. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, open window. Throw that point out. It's only when, when they're trying to help poor people. They're trying to help somebody who, you know, is not wealthy and powerful. Oh, then we have to worry about deficits. You know what I'm saying? Because right after, you know, right around the same time, before and after, actually, uh, that uh, Lori Lightfoot and uh, her Northside allies were bemoaning the fact that we're spending money on nurses and schools, they were ready to give up a whole bunch of money to build Lincoln Yards. Just the same thing had happened just with the Amazon. It happened with the Olympics. Uh, before that, we're always ready to spend money, you know, when like these big boondoggles that really don't help anybody in hey, real, watch real, your real mouth. life. And, uh, but then when it co comes to ordinary services and stuff, oh, you can't afford that. You have to be responsible because deficits matter. Now it turns out the deficits don't matter. Now it turns out you don't hear one Republican talking about a deficit. You know why? Because it's a made-up phony issue to begin with, folks. They didn't care about deficits. They just cared about spending money on things that they want. If they were going to bankrupt government spending it on tax breaks for themselves, they were happy with that. It's not as though the Republican Party has ever been a responsible group of people that was looking out for the collective good. You've been sold a bill of goods, Democrats. You've been sold a bill of goods on, let's see, the deficit. 
Fair Maps, I could go on and on about Fair Maps, the Fair Maps movement here in the state of Illinois. Let's redraw the maps fairly because it's not right that Michael Madigan and the Democrats have the majority. And then, so even once again, D, my friends on the North side, my liberal friend, Ben, they have a point there. But by the way, I just, I always had a conversation with someone of the leftist persuasion who was supporting Marie Newman and was saying, my, I'm going on and on about Michael Madigan being the most powerful guy uh, in the state. And I was like, he lost. Why are you guys still saying he's the most powerful? That's how brainwashed Democrats are. They just believe the stupid stuff that Republicans tell them. They believe all the bad things that Republicans tell them about themselves. They're like self-hating Democrats. Well, Ben, they have a point. I don't know one Republican well, in the ben. world. Well, Ben. <laughs> Do you know a Republican out there who goes, well, Ben, they, you have a point. No Republicans out there. They're like, look, those dumb Democrats. They believe the stupid stuff we say about them. Anyway, so I guess deficits don't matter, Dems. All right? So, you know, next year, God willing, got my hand, I'm praying that this coronavirus, we get over this, we get past this, okay? We ask for money, let's say, to expand public transportation. We ask for money to, say, expand uh, health care for all. We ask for money to, say, to educate kids, pay for schools, et cetera, and so forth. Infrastructure that we desperately need. Pensions for old geezers who, you know, got to live, all right? Next time we do that, when Republicans say, oh, we have a deficit, Dems, I hope you have enough sense to say, uh-uh, too smart to fall for it again. The Ben Jarofsky Show. All right, we got Pete PC Cunningham on the phone. Peter, can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine, Brother Ben. All right, this is Uncharted Water for us. Day two of uh, me doing the show from my house. I remember um, advice from Peter Cunningham. Peter, I don't know if you remember this, but after I got fired by the radio station, I can't remember its name, uh, I was talking to you. I was walking down the street. I remember it very clearly. And you said, Ben, stay on the air. Never go off the air. Do you remember that advice you gave me? Immediately go on the air. Uh, I did, yeah, I, yeah. Great advice from Peter P.C. Cunningham. I didn't take it then because I didn't have the uh, capabilities, but here we are. Uh, in- and I stopped listening to progressive radio after you left anyway, 8.20 a.m. Yeah. So, you know, when they bring you back, I'll be back. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that, uh, Peter Cunningham. All right, a lot to talk about with Peter. Um, there's this essay that he alerted me to today. I'm obsessed with it now. Uh, it was in the Washington Post. I've already talked about it a little bit. Stuart Stevens, uh, it's called, it's essentially, it's a, a distillation of a book he wrote, Republicans Like Me Built the Movement. It's all a bunch of lies. Uh, very f- fascinating essay by Stuart Stevens coming clean about the lies uh, that uh, Republicans have put out there to win campaigns and push Democrats uh, toward the right. Also, Peter's essay in the Sun-Times last week, I'm extolling the virtues of that one, telling people to read it, about how Joe Biden uh, should make peace with the uh, lefty uh, wing, the Bernie Sanders wing of the uh, Democratic Party. Uh, and then this will talk about uh, how the city deals with a, uh, a massive health crisis like the coronavirus uh, outbreak. Uh, Peter knows a thing or two about that from his days in the Daly administration during the 90s. But Peter, why don't we start uh, with your advice, uh, the essay you wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times, uh, advice you gave to Joe Biden. Talk about that. Well, I, uh, I, um, I, I know Joe Biden just a little bit. I met him once when I was in Washington, about four years there. I had a great kind of a two-hour ride with him on, on his plane coming back from Florida. Arnie and I had done an event with him. And uh, 
I was kind of floored by the guy. He, um, he, his, his stamina was amazing. He spent uh, an hour and a half greeting soldiers returning from Iraq. So we were at a, uh, you know, at a, at a port in, I think Jacksonville. And then um, he uh, went over to a school and spent about 60 or 70 minutes talking to a school. And then he went into the kitchen and he spent another 30 or 40 minutes signing posters to students. I was floored by just how, how dedicated he was to sort of connecting with people and communicating. And then we got on this plane, we did a media interview and then I ended up talking to him for a couple of hours and I had a really good time. I, uh, I think Bernie ran a great campaign. Yeah, he hasn't ended it yet, so I don't want to be presumptuous. Uh, he, he, he's mobilized young people in, in ways that I don't think anyone has. I mean, maybe Obama did to some degree. Um, but Bernie has really, really inspired a lot of young people. And right now they're feeling really burned. And I just think it's really false to Joe to reach out to them and tell them that he's heard them on every one of their issues. Go right down the list of Green New Deal. Uh, you know, Medicare for all. Say, I've heard you. I'm not promising you that I'm going to agree with you on every issue, but I heard you. And I want to work together with you and with Senator Sanders uh, to, to, you know, to get closer to the shared vision we both have of a really robust safety net that uh, enables us not only to handle crises like the coronavirus, but to create, as Bernie would say, an economy that works for everyone. And I, I just think he really ought to do that and do it aggressively and sincerely and uh, immediately. Do you think that uh, he should back off on his opposition to Medicare for all at various points during uh, the campaign up to now? He said things like he would veto it if it came to him. Uh, do you think he should back off from that? I First of all, you know, I think people say a lot of things in campaigns. The truth is if Congress passed Medicare for all and it landed on his desk, he would not veto it. I don't think he'd veto it because his chances of passing something else, he would have already tried to pass what he wanted and it would not have happened. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, I don't think Bernie Sanders would veto a public option if that came to his desk and he was the president. He wouldn't say, no, forget it. Well, maybe Bernie would, but I don't think he would. I'm guessing that he'd he'd uh, he'd pass it too and say it, it moves the ball forward. It's not everything I wanted. I mean, but that's what Washington's about. You know, you push, you push, you push, and you get what you can. And uh, so, but yeah, I think he ought to say that, look, there's a lot less distance between an aggressive effort to expand the public option and Medicare for all. Let's, let's, let, let's, you know, if, if I'm the nominee, let's assume he's the nominee. If I'm the president, I'm going to push hard on a public option. I appreciate that you want Medicare for all. Uh, Medicare for all may be, um, you know, down the road a little bit. I wouldn't have him back off and say suddenly embrace Medicare for all. That that would be disingenuous. I think he he believes, as I do, that asking 180 million people to suddenly give up their health insurance is a little disruptive. Uh, and I think they resist it. Well, these are radical times. Uh, and uh, this gets... All true. All, and uh, so anything is possible. When I see the headline in the New York Times, the U.S. seeks $500 billion in checks for taxpayers... Uh, Donald Trump is talking about uh, writing, uh, distributing checks directly to people just uh, across the board. They haven't, they haven't worked out the ground rules on this uh, yet, Peter, so I don't know if there's... No, they haven't. Yeah. Uh, but, no, but we're all socialists. Now, yes, aren't we? <laughs> we're all socialists. So Medicare for All is right around the corner. <laughs> well, certainly uh, paycheck, paycheck for All is right around the corner. Uh, you know, bailouts for the uh, the... the um, you know, the big lenders, the big banks and the big 
you know, the financial industry is absolutely happening. Um, big companies, you know, the airlines are going to get the next bailout and they won't be the only ones. I mean, look, you know, we're here in Chicago. We're seeing our friends in the music business struggling mightily. You know, they literally are looking at all of their income disappearing and none of them make a lot of money in the first place, as we all know. And so, uh, you know, what do we do for them? Well, we got to help them, you know, as, 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 as patrons and supporters of the arts, we got to find ways to help them. So as I, I tweeted out today, yep, we're all socialists. Call it what you want. But, you know, even though Democrats have clearly rejected Bernie, I mean, you know, the, 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 the last three weeks of primaries have been a decisive, uh, 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 you know, um, message from Democratic voters that they want Joe, they want you know, what, what he represents, which is a more moderate, you know, uh, a more moderate leader. But Bernie pulled us all to the left. To his credit, he pulled us all to the left. He made us confront our dependence on government. He made us talk about it. He, I think he shaped the conversation more than anybody. All right. I'm, I'm going to uh, disagree with you a little point. Uh, when you said voters rejected Bernie, I would phrase it this way. I think the voters up till now have been very pragmatic and practical. I, I believe the electability issue was paramount on their minds. And uh, they went to Biden, by and large, because they thought he was best positioned to defeat Donald Trump. And I heard this argument, Peter, so frequently up till now that Bernie's too left. Uh, they'll never elect a Democratic Socialist. There's pictures of him uh, on his honeymoon in the Soviet Union. Uh, there's there's scenes, there's footage of him praising the Sandinistas, et cetera, and so forth. He's too far left. And now in the face of this virus, it's like all these attacks are almost obsolete. They're, they're really, I thought they were irrelevant to begin with, and they're particularly mm-hmm. irrelevant now This when I see that Donald Trump is embracing the notion of sending out checks to people in need just Obviously, because he realizes his uh, re-elections in uh, balance. So I, I, I don't know if, if Democrats have rejected Bernie or his Bernie's ideas so much as they're being pragmatic and they think Biden is best positioned to win. That's how I uh, phrase it. Do you agree with me on that? Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's fair, and I think it's also fair to say that a heck of a lot of people agree with Bernie on the issues, but a lot of them didn't vote. <laughs> Yeah. So you know, if if you say that you're the you know you're the candidate for all the people, um, but only some of those people voted, you know, you can let the the some who voted make the decision. Uh, I mean, that's the way our system works. It's the ones who vote make the decision. But we know that there's a lot of young people who didn't vote who who, who favor Bernie's ideas. And uh, and yes, I think the coronavirus is brought into sharp relief the fact that we are deeply dependent on government. Um, to, to deal with something like this. All right, let's talk about Stuart Stevens' essay because it ties into uh, this larger conversation. He is a Republican strategist and a writer. He's just wrote a book, uh, and uh, he wrote a, an essay in today's a, uh, Washington Post. Republicans like me built this moment, and effectively he's conceding that the, there was Republican strategists, Republican politicians have spread this anti-government rhetoric for the last 40 or so years that have led to this moment mm-hmm. Of crisis with uh, Donald Trump. Uh, what was your when you read that? I mean, one? Really, yeah, yeah I mean, it really, it, it really, it led to Trump is what he's really saying. It's like he's the he is the culmination of forty years of telling people we don't need government. Forty years of telling people 
we don't really have to honor science and listen to science. 40 years of telling people that trickle-down economics is going to work out for everybody. You know, 40 years of we can go it alone, American exceptionalism, just just go down the list. And frankly, you know, he, did, he hinted at this, um, but you and I both know, uh, 40 years of frankly dividing America uh, with the Southern strategy that Nixon started. I mean, I was thinking about this, Ben. You and I are old enough to remember the 60s. We weren't, at least I wasn't an active participant in all those protests. I was a little too young. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like 10 or 11 or 12 years old during the, the height of the anti-war movement. But I watched it on TV. I, I saw Bobby Kennedy and King and on the news every night. I saw the Vietnam War on the news. And in the middle of the most dynamic presidential year, in, in I think, in history, 1968, assassinations, Lyndon Johnson dropping out in March. He dropped out, I think, on March 30th. That's how late things were. Bobby Kennedy entered the race, I think, just before or just after it, I forget. And he was on his way to win. Gene McCarthy was there, and we ended up with Hubert Humphrey. And we elected Nixon. Nixon, a guy who lost in 60, lost for governor of California in 62, and six years later we elected Nixon with that Southern strategy. And it made me think that activist movements like we've had in America for the last 10 years, you know, Black Lives Matter and, uh, you know, the Women's March and uh, Occupy Wall Street, you know, these are all valid and legitimate and really inspiring expressions of frustration with the status quo. And yet, they don't always translate into political change, right? Because mm-hmm. we, we elected Trump in the midst of all that stuff. So, yeah, this Stuart Stevens essay, I think, is um, is meaningful. Uh, you know, he, he's writing a book saying it was all a lie. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a, a GOP consultant who worked for everybody, from George Bush to, you know, the, a bunch of, whole bunch of members of the Senate. Well, and, you know, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know... Following up on what you just said, yes, the Southern strategy worked for Richard Nixon, and it has been embraced one way or another by every Republican, successful Republican president since Reagan, uh, George W. Bush, Mm -hmm. uh, Daddy Bush to a certain degree. No, Daddy Bush did the Willie Horton ad. Yes, he did. He was was playing on that, too. And as as we were discussing before, Lee Atwater on his deathbed essentially apologized for you know, for playing that dog whistle race politics, right? And 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 so so you had these appeals uh, to race, these appeals uh, that to uh, to play on divisions that have worked very well for the Republican they've the Republican Party since the Civil Rights Bill of the mid '60s. Uh, Johnson, yep. Lyndon Johnson knew he said he, he's killing the Democratic Party in the South with this bill. And by the way, just on a yep. tangent within a tangent, Peter, we were having this conversation the other day with a historian on his show, and he pointed out that quite a few moderate Republicans voted for the uh, the Civil Rights Bill. That there was opposition yep. from Southern Democrats to the bill, so they needed Republican moderates uh, to uh, to pass the bill. And then, of course, what's happened in the transformation, all those Democrats uh, who had voted against the bill, bill are now the Republicans of the South, and the moderates mm-hmm. who voted for it are now Democrats, essentially. So there's been a political uh, transformation that works against the Democratic Party interests because of the Electoral College. But the... The thing is, is when they want to have a legitimate argument, Republicans, so they're playing the race, that's the underbelly of things, Peter. But when they want to make a legitimate argument, they'll trot out something like deficits. And I think... Yep, another great example of hypocrisy. They pretend to be the party of fiscal conservatism. And yet they, 
more, far more than Democrats have driven up the deficit yeah. with their tax cuts. Uh, you know, Clinton's the only one who had a balanced budget in the last 50 years. I don't know how many years. So my question for you is, how much of this, how much should the Democrats go along with Republicans? I, I've, I've been mm-hmm. watching this for so long, and I always think it's a trick bag when Democrats, even Biden talks this way, like, we, I, we, we need to be responsible, we have to get along with Republicans, there should be bipartisanship. And then you have this guy, uh, Stuart Stevens, writing a book saying it was all a lie. We don't believe any of this stuff we say. We just want to get mm-hmm. elected. So how much yeah. should Democrats play along with Republicans? Well, you know, uh, I mean, I think we're all nostalgic, or at least some of us are nostalgic for a day when, you know, when politics wasn't, uh, you know, the permanent cycle, but, you know, came around every four years for a couple of months. And uh, in between, you, you focus on governing. And governing meant a little push and pull, some compromise. That's all gone. I, nobody does that anymore. Those, you know, there used to be these bipartisan commissions to reduce the deficit and bipartisan bills to, you know, fix campaign financing, McCain fine go, people like that. I remember when Obama went out there first, he and McCain tried to do a, a uh, campaign finance bill together. Uh, but, I mean, it seems like it's all gone. I think the challenge for Democrats is that we need to get back into the business of building public will. And while I don't want to follow the Republican uh, model here, uh, I've, I've been saying this for a while, that culture drives politics and politics drives policy. And we spend a lot of time playing in the policy area, but we got to go further upstream. We've got to like reconnect with the American people on the idea that we're all in this together that this isn't a country of rugged individuals. This is a country of communities. And, and you know, we, we would settle, the West was settled by wagon trains. It wasn't settled by the marble man. And, uh, we, you know, we got we, we to, gotta, like, reconnect with Americans with the idea at the heart of the middle-class promise. That idea is that, you know, you work hard, maybe in a factory or maybe in a company, maybe in a, maybe on your own, but, 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 as Elizabeth Warren effectively pointed out, if you have a factory, well, your goods are shipped on roads. We all paid the bills. Your employees were educated by the rest of us. We paid to educate the rest of your employees. Uh, you you benefit from the society that we built and pay for every single day. And I feel like we haven't done enough to uh, to build that cultural awareness of our of our collective interest. And that's where I would like to see the Democrats focus, rather than reaching across the aisle and compromising and compromising with people who don't have any interest in compromising with us. Well, I think that this, one of the only good things I can say about the coronavirus uh, and the fact that we're all locked away in our homes right now is if ever there was a moment when, uh, well, there you are, when, if ever there was a moment when the people could believe in the collective, uh, you know, the need for like a collective spirit, it would be now. If there was ever a moment when Joe Biden could successfully yep. make that argument uh, to voters in America, it would be now. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is absolutely a moment. And uh, he should be stepping up. He gave a great speech on the coronavirus last week. I really thought it was very uh, well done. And it kind of totally showed Trump, this is what leadership looks like. Okay? It's concrete. It's It's empathetic. It's serious. It's not politics. You keep politics out of it. 
you you know, you drill down on what people need to hear and need to know and need to understand. And, you know, because you're the one who's informed by all the experts. You have all these resources at your disposal. So instead of dodging and weaving all day long, you know, be a leader. And so, yes, this is absolutely an opportunity to show people that the myth of, you know, government doesn't matter. And, you know, self-interest, greed is good. Self-interest is the only, uh, you know, the only motivation we need in order to have a thriving society for everybody. No, it isn't. What we need is collective interest. We need to remember that we're all in this together. And, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's time to ask those questions. It was asked in the Democratic primary, in the Democratic debate when Bloomberg was up on the stage. I mean, it was asked in a rather simplistic way. Should we have billionaires? Should billionaires be allowed to exist? But it's, it's, it's asking a bigger question, which is, can extreme inequality uh, be allowed to exist? Or can we recognize that in a society, when you have extreme inequality, you have to recognize that's something wrong, and you're supposed to do something about that, instead of just saying, oh, you know what? We're capitalists, and that's where it goes. No, we're not capitalists. We're, we're, we're pretty socialist right now. Yeah. No, everybody's a socialist right now. It's uh, U.S. seeks $500 billion in checks for taxpayers. I saw that headline. And not a word of complaint from Republicans. They're just signing on. Get those checks out there. They realize yeah. Donald Trump's reelection is in the – they may not worry about the, 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 the country in the, during the middle of this virus. They do know one thing. Uh, Donald Trump's re-election is in jeopardy. Let's go to the local. Yeah. Let's switch it to the local level. Uh, Peter, you worked uh, in the Daily Administration in the 90s, and uh, you had a sense of of what the challenges. I remember the heat, the big heat wave of 1995. I forget how many people died, but it was... Uh, yeah, it's about 700. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was mentioning to you that I was... It, it, it broke on a weekend, um, over a weekend. Like, uh, I, I remember I was in the office um, that, on a Sunday, because I'd gotten a call from either the guy, the communications guy in the fire department or something saying, God, we're getting all these calls. We're getting a lot of calls. And I, it, various other people got the call at the same time, but I know I was one of the first ones to get it. And, you know, Mayor Daly had a no Sunday rule, a very strict rule that you leave him alone on Sundays, you know, sort of a real emergency. You just left him alone. That was his day to be with his family. He worked Saturdays. You know, he worked Monday to Friday. Um, uh, uh, but he he really had a no Sunday rule for years and years, and uh, I never, I rarely, rarely saw it uh, interfered with. And it, we made the decision to call him at home and say something's going on. But there's hundreds and hundreds of seniors that were getting reports of from the fire department and the ambulance, and and he came in, and sure enough, it was you know there was something very very unusual going on. Um, you know, it was super hot. And, Maybe they were black brownouts. I can't remember all the details, but it, it was a moment of crisis. It was a moment of crisis that exposed uh, people uh, in, in living yeah, alone and vulnerabilities of the most uh, impoverished neighborhoods and isolated neighborhoods. Uh, what are some yeah. of the challenges the city's facing right now with coronavirus across the board? I mean, I think that, um, and I see it from the mayor already. They're they're just figuring out how to keep the city going. Um, how to keep running the city when you know nobody knows who's sick and nobody knows how easy it is to get infected and nobody wants to get infected. But take the police department for example; these guys are uh, having to do their job. In some cases, they need to touch people and arrest them and get very close to them and get breathed on by them. 
and they get in their car, they take them in if they've done something wrong, and the next thing you know, they got to get their car cleaned. So that takes a car, and it gets involved, you know, I mean, it, it becomes a problem, and we don't know how many police officers now are infected, but if a bunch of them are infected, it's going to, you know, it's going to pull them off the line at a time when the city's facing some, you know, pretty alarming levels of gun violence. Um, you know, right now, the the uh, gun violence is up about, the homicides are up about 50% over the last year, for two months of this year. Um, so something, you know, kind of extreme is going on out there. You know, we, we've had three years of declining gun violence. And if it keeps up at the current pace, we're going to lose all of those games. So uh, I think there are consequences. You know, guys have to continue to collect the garbage. And, you know, I know she's closed a bunch of the libraries, but kept a few of them open because some people really depend on them for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is complicated. Um, uh, uh, there are states, I've been reading about some of the other states that haven't closed schools. I think there's 11 or 12 that still haven't closed their schools. And their kids are coming home from schools. And in some cases, their parents are frontline healthcare workers. They're at risk because their kids are at risk. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, this is just one of the facts of life about our society, right? You see all the pictures of the kids in Florida partying on the beach, annoyed that their spring break is being <laughs> upset by this. Like, kids, wake up, you know? Yeah, it's a very strange world out there. And then there's this element of, I don't even know. I, I'm even hesitant to label them a Republican Party, but the, there was an article in the paper uh, I've been sharing with people. I don't think I shared it with you, like the deniers. I don't know if I yeah. sent this to you. Uh, it's not just Sean Hannity, who's a very bizarre individual, Peter, uh, but yeah. like Rob Schneider, the comedian. Like there's people who are using whatever platform they have to deny the seriousness of the coronavirus, bemoan the fact that people like like – that, that you and I are doing this the way we're doing that. You know what I mean? We're not in right. the studio, like the old days. I'm in my house. You're in your house. It's very yeah. strange, like a need. I think they just so desperately want to be, I told you so. If we manage to, if we manage to, to you know, to really uh, grasp, you know, stop this thing before it gets out, totally out of control, these guys will all be the first ones to stand up and say, I told you so. But, you know, I mean, look what's going on. I think, what did I read? Italy's at 3,000 deaths now. Yeah. I mean, 3,000 deaths is a lot of people in a, in a small time period. You yeah. know, it's, I mean, it's, it's, this is serious. And anybody who says it isn't serious is, I think, an idiot and uh, really, really uh, a danger to society. Yeah, even, tr- even Trump is now saying it's serious, but you could see it's almost like a battle in his mind. When we watch his press conferences, you could, he kind of wants to break loose and be the old Donald Trump, you know what I'm saying? Like when he says it, the China virus, he, this compulsion to label it the China virus. He, you could see him struggling with it, Peter. Like, I, I, I got to be presidential I looking. I, I, I think what he's also trying to do is, you know, there's two jobs of the president. One is to tell the truth, and the other one is to keep people from panicking. And I think he, he, he thinks he can keep people from panicking by not telling them the truth. <laughs> he can't do the two of them at the same time because it requires much more nuance. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, so like his personal behavior is completely wrong. Like he's, he's, he's up on a stage with lots of people. He's still shaking hands uh, with people all the time in public uh, or on TV, actually. So he just has trouble with that nuance of both being really truthful and at the same time not sounding alarmist. 
All right, Peter P. As we know, he has a, he has trouble with the truth. Yes, he, he, he battles it every day. Peter Cunningham, I want to thank you very much uh, for making time for us. And uh, usually this is the stage of the interview with you where you break out your guitar and sing a song. Uh, but unfortunately, we haven't figured out how to do that quite yet. Next time you come on the show, even if we're by phone, I'm going to make you break, break out the guitar and sing a song and cheer us up, okay? Yeah, we didn't even get to local elections. Oh, my goodness. No, we didn't get to local. Well, real quickly, uh, local uh, elections. Lots of, lots, of, lots of people have talked about it, right? I'm yeah, a lot Marie of people Newman. have talked about it, but I was Marie Newman and Kim Fox. That's uh, that's a big story. That's a big local story. And, you know, Joe's, Joe's, Joe's victory was pretty significant here in Illinois and even bigger in Florida. So, But anyway, we can get to that another time. Uh, I was really pleased with both outcomes of Marie and Kim, you know. I was too, especially since uh, the Bill Conway campaign was using a, a tape of something that Kim Fox said on my show against her. So I really was happy oh, yeah. when that blew up. Uh, she she cursed when she was on my show. I agreed the, with the point she was making about Smollettgate, and apparently mm-hmm. the voters agreed with me as well. They didn't think it was a, a, a reason to turn her out of office. Peter, a good topic. Uh, yeah, good topic for you to think about going forward. It's just money and politics. Bloomberg spent a half a billion dollars. Steyer spent one hundred and twenty-five million. Uh, Conway spent about four times as much as Kim. So there are limits to how much money in politics can do. But we can get to that another time. Another time. All right, Peter Cunningham, thank you very much. We'll be right back after this.